Do you like to learn about random wild stuff? You know, the things you didn't think you needed to know about, then realize you should? Then welcome to Nothing Off Limits, the podcast that gives you one place to go for something different. Impress your next party guest with your unusual body of knowledge. And if you dig the show, get more information at ladyfoxentertainment.com and subscribe, rate, or review. Thanks. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Nothing Off Limits. Now, you know that I've covered narcissism a couple of times in the past on this show, but today's episode is particularly special because you're going to be presented with the other side, the perspective from the narcissist himself. His pseudonym is H.G. Tudor. He is a self-described narcissistic psychopath. He writes extensively about his situation and mindset to enable people to understand finally how he and his kind think, behave, and operate. Through this, he dispels myths about them, unlocks many of their secrets, and enables readers or listeners to understand, counter, and finally escape the clutches of their personal narcissists. H.G. conveys this unique perspective through Knowing the Narcissist at narcsite.com. It's a blog which has attracted 5.6 million hits in under two years and through similar platforms including Facebook and YouTube, which is where I found him. He has an extensive catalog of books as well, which address varying aspects of the narcissistic dynamic and enables those who have experienced the bewildering entanglement of a narcissist to comprehend what has happened and achieve freedom. I've bought several of his books and they've helped me personally escape and heal. And HG, by the way, attributes his self-awareness to his ongoing treatment. This forms a lot of the information he shares. He's going to be sharing a lot of that today. His desire, he says, is to weaponize empaths on a global scale. I dig that. Welcome, HG. Hello. So great to have you. Thank you for inviting me. Now, I'm really curious. I found you on YouTube originally, and then I got all of your books and such. Why did you start sharing this information? You just mentioned kind of briefly in your bio about ongoing treatment. Tell us more. Okay. I enjoy writing, and as a consequence of the treatment that I engaged in, it was suggested that I would find it useful to describe my experiences Uh, my side of the fence, my growing awareness uh, as an exercise to assist me in understanding the way that I behaved. And as I started to do this and learned more in terms of the information that was already out there about my kind, I realized that a lot of the information uh, doesn't go far enough because it doesn't know everything about us. A lot of it uh, is also from a particular perspective which is invariably that of the victim, which of course is entirely uh, valid and relevant and also enables people to receive validation when they read about the experience of a victim similar to their own. However, it does not uh, convey to you the way that we think. It also contained instances whereby there were certain errors uh, about the way that we act and think. And therefore, I wanted to convey the reality of what it's like being our kind, not only from my perspective, but also the perspective of uh, similar uh, narcissists. I grade them as lesser mid-range and greater, and we could talk about that in due course, Mm -hmm. because there are a number of narcissists in my family uh, that I also know socially and through work. And so I spent a long time observing and studying them. And what I wanted to do was um, convey this information through a medium that I enjoyed, and that was writing. That's awesome. Now, may I ask, what made you seek treatment, or were you forced into it? 
I was forced into treatment as a consequence of the demands of my family that arose from uh, certain behaviours that I had engaged in. And essentially, uh, we came to an agreement whereby they wanted to cause me to have this treatment and explained that if I did not, I would not receive my inheritance, which is substantial. Oh, that's and huge. <laughs> also, and also um, that I would be subjected to a criminal and regulatory investigation arising out of allegations of my behavior. Okay. Uh, there's no substance in that, but the time that would be involved in dealing with all of that was something that I would rather avoid. And therefore, as a consequence of wanting to achieve those aims of avoiding those investigations and securing my inheritance, I agreed that I would have this treatment. And also, I then found it rather interesting because I've learned more about myself. Absolutely. I love, though, that you said that it was just about avoiding criminal charges and getting your inheritance. It wasn't about repairing your relationship with your family, right? Absolutely. The, the whole purpose of it is to serve my needs. Uh, <laughs> they, they, they're liars and have told lies about me. And this is the, this is the most effective way of me avoiding consequences. Um, so that's why I've done it. Got it. Now, let's step back. You did say we'll talk about the different levels of narcissism, yes. which I find very fascinating. I did not know this prior to finding your YouTube channel. So not every narcissist is the same exact type. So tell us about these levels and maybe a few distinguishable traits of each level. Certainly. In order to enable people to understand what they're dealing with, um, I categorize um, narcissist into three schools. So you have the lesser, the mid-range, and the greater. And then you have four cadres, which layer on top of that. Dealing with the schools first, the lesser narcissist is quite easy to spot. A rudimentary individual with low cognitive function tends to use violence uh, in a physical sense in order to exert control, also sexual violence, has a very low threshold on the control of their fury and therefore regularly explodes, often injuring people, damaging property. There are subdivisions within each school, but within essentially the lesser, uh, they tend to have haphazard employment, uh, unless they're an upper lesser, whereby they're reasonably successful. They have a bullying nature. <laughs> they have absolutely no awareness of what they are. They have no insight. And their approach to life is very much, if you don't agree with me, you're a fucking idiot. Mm -hmm. And if you were to say to that person, why have you adopted that approach? They'll say, because I say so. And they don't feel any need to explain themselves to anybody. Um, they're the type of individuals that will come along and say, yes, I've got a car like that, but mine's better. And they almost become a bit of a caricature, really, of a narcissist because they're so blatant. And unless you have the misfortune to be enveloped in a, an entanglement with one whereby you're suffering from uh, violence from them, etc., if you happen to be friends with the lesser narcissist, they actually become quite cartoon-like in their behavior. Uh, they tend to think everybody likes them, but generally people roll their eyes or actually fear them because of the uh, vitriolic and furious temper that they often exhibit. Yeah. The mid-range narcissist uh, also does not know what he or she is, has no insight. And whereas the lesser is um, brutal and aggressive, the mid-range narcissist is passive-aggressive, makes a lot of use of silent treatments, the mid-range narcissist actually believes that he or she is a very good person. They often think that they're empathic. They think that they do good in the world and they're desperate to be seen as a good person. They want to be a pillar of the community, a member of the church, for example. And therefore, if people don't accept what they do, 
they respond in a passive-aggressive way, smearing people behind their backs, giving them silent treatments, uh, utilizing the assistance of other people. They're pretty cowardly individuals, but often very hard to spot because often people will just think that that person is perhaps a little highly strung or somewhat sensitive, or indeed comes across as an empath. And in those circumstances, there are many mid-range narcissists that lurk on the internet, um, masquerading as uh, advisors on narcissistic abuse sites. Oh, mm-hmm. that's scary. <clears throat> I feel indeed. like the mid-rangers, mid-rangers are really dangerous. They are dangerous in the sense that although they are not particularly malicious, they're very difficult to spot. And their passive-aggressive behavior means that they engage a lot in pity plays and of course empathic people want to heal and they want to fix so they're able to draw victims in very readily and basically have people feel sorry for them and uh, ultimately because they are obsessed with being seen as a good person and they really do believe that they are because of course they have a completely different perspective to everybody else that they see people who don't do as they want as the abuser and therefore, um, a lesser narcissist will, uh, doesn't see anything wrong with what he does. If he punches you in the face, you deserved it. There you are. There's nothing more to say. The mid-range narcissist will recognize that some of his behaviors upsets people, but will never own the consequence of it. Mm, so, for we'll example, blame it on somebody else. That's right. So the mid-range narcissist, having a greater degree of cognitive function, may well say, for example, I know it hurts you when I don't speak to you for a week, but if you didn't nag me, I wouldn't have to have time out. So they recognize it hurts, but they never own it. And they will either blame it on the victim or third parties or some external event, for example, they are quite apt at saying, I don't know what came over me. It must be the demons. (laughs) And they sometimes like to portray themselves as something of a troubled soul, again, part of a pity play. And mid-range narcissists are dangerous because they, out of any school, are more likely to go along with the suggestion of therapy, not because they recognize that there is anything wrong with them, but they do it as part of the manipulation. And what mid-range narcissists often do is they will attend the therapy, they will hoodwink the therapist, and then return to the victim and tell the victim that the therapist said there's nothing wrong with the narcissist, oh my God. which may be a lie or if the therapist has been hoodwinked, may be true, and then actually turn around and say to the uh, victim, I've gone and done what you wanted. I sought therapy and they told me there's nothing wrong. But what they actually told me was you're the abuser. And so they then project and fire it back at the victim. Wow. And that's an apt trait. And then finally, we have the greater narcissist. And the greater narcissist has awareness and knows what he or she is, but does not admit it readily and does not care about the consequences of the behavior that is exhibited to other people. So whereas the lesser and mid-range have no idea what they are and do not see what they do as being particularly wrong and will not change, uh, they are configured in such a way that they just cannot see uh, the situation in the same way as a victim does, which is something that many victims struggle to understand, that there is this completely different perspective. Mm -hmm. The greater can straddle both worlds, Um, the lesser and the mid-ranger will often lie, but that is their truth. And they do not see that they have told a lie. They believe it to be true. The greater we lie repeatedly, and we know that we're lying because it's all part of the manipulation and the playing of games. Uh, We take it to a level whereby 
we derive particular pleasure and enjoyment in the mass manipulation of people, drawing them into our worlds. Mm. Great, great narcissists are particularly charismatic, especially magnetic, invariably uh, successful, um, and they may be uh, quite uh, evident in the sense that uh, it might be a particularly charismatic politician or pop star, <laughs> or you may have the more Machiavellian side of things, where you have the fixer who moves in the corridors of power, a quite shadowy figure uh, who is pulling the strings here, there, and everywhere, and isn't particularly bothered about uh, huge recognition on a uh, mass public scale, but takes recognition from uh, the impact he or she has on those around him within those particular uh, spheres. And greaters are motivated with malice also which is a particular trait of theirs. So those are the three schools. And then you have the four cadres. Well, wait, before and, we get there, yeah, which certainly. type are you? I'm a greater. Okay, that's what I figured, because they tend to be extremely intellectual. Yes, of course, a middle mid-ranger or an upper mid-ranger can also be intellectual. And sometimes people often entangle with an upper mid-ranger and think it's a greater. Greaters are very rare. Most narcissists are lesser or mid-range, and mid-range is the largest group of them all. Mm -hmm. um, there's no empirical evidence to support that. I mainly make that assertion based on my anecdotal evidence of years of recognizing my kind. And then more latterly, as a consequence of the experiences of those that I interact with on the blog. Um, but with greater narcissists, there is this awareness. And in certain instances, we will give little tells in order to see if the victim has worked out what's going on. And again, it's all part of playing the game with them. Hmm. Very fascinating. I'm pretty sure I was with a lesser mid-ranger because there was a lot okay. of passive aggressiveness, but there was also a lot of outbursts and temper tantrums and things yes, of that well, sort. Yes, that sounds about that sounds exactly right. A, a lower mid-ranger uh, is on the cusp of the two schools, and therefore you're right. Will exhibit silent treatments. Uh, will be want to be seen as a decent person, but will be prone to temper tantrums and outbursts. Mm -hmm. So I, I agree with your assessment. Mm -hmm. All right, so let's move on to the subtypes. Okay. Well, the cadres, they layer onto the schools, and not all cadres are applicable to all schools. For example, you never get a greater victim narcissist. That's mutually exclusive. The four cadres are victim, somatic, cerebral, and elite. The victim narcissist is a pretty pathetic figure. He is looking for a victim that is there essentially to mother him, somebody who's excessively caring. They often have no interest in sex. And while sex can be a major weapon of seduction for our kind, the victim narcissist is more likely to use it in the sense of being pretty incompetent or may even be impotent. And in the circumstances, just wants the victim to either not really be interested in sex themselves, and some people aren't, or in a way to teach them. And they are very much looking for that uh, mothering figure. So in this victim. case they could potentially have a very long-term relationship if they find the right partner who's okay with that. That's right. Um, when we devalue and disengage from people, there are a number of factors. I won't go into all of that detail now to stay on top of the cadres, but essentially um, we look for three things. We look for fuel, which is your emotional attention generated by what we've done, your character traits, which we steal for ourselves and create a construct from, and residual benefits. And when a victim narcissist will need fuel, but the residual benefits pay a large, play a large part in the life of the victim narcissist. Basically, someone to cook and clean for him or her, 
uh, rub ointment into his bad back, uh, put a roof over his head and so on and so forth. They are often people that will just stay at home all day, relatively insular, and they will latch on to one particular prime resource as a victim and keep that person in place for as long as they possibly can hmm. because they see the value of that individual nursing them. Wow. So that's the victim cadre. Okay. Uh, the somatic is uh, an individual where it's all about appearance. So looking good, uh, huge interest in sex, uses sex as a huge weapon of seduction, uh, likes to go to nice places, uh, wears nice clothes, lives in a good house, uh, works out, all, all about the appearances, and will look for victims with similar interests. Cerebral is all about intellect, and we'll be looking for a sapiosexual uh, victim who's interested in the mind. Um, cerebral narcissists will engage in some sex, but purely as a matter of duty. They will use words in a sexual way to seduce, but they're not really interested in the sexual act itself. Hmm. Uh, cerebral narcissists are all about uh, the arts, literature, uh, academic achievements. Okay. And the elite is a combination of somatic and cerebral so you'd have an individual perhaps who's somatic who's really ripped and buff and works out regularly at the gym and takes steroids an elite will look after his body but won't be as full-on somatic as a somatic narcissist but has plenty of somatic traits so they combine essentially they may well have a very athletic figure but they'd also be very intelligent with it mm -hmm. uh, but not to the professor level as say a cerebral so the elite caters for those narcissists which have the traits which uh, align with somatic and cerebral. Is it possible for a somatic narcissist to not be in shape him or herself, but just be obsessed with people who look really good, like they kind of troll all of the Snapchat and Instagram accounts of gorgeous people and such? Yes. Again, when I talk in terms of what are these, what are the things that are the applicable characteristics, what you have to remember is you have to take into account both school and cadre. So, for example, a lower, lesser somatic narcissist will perhaps have been reasonably good-looking when he was younger, but his reliance on drink and drugs and smoking and his poor diet means that he's out of shape. Mm -hmm. and his face is blotchy. But because of the delusional nature of the narcissist, he still considers himself to be roguishly good-looking. <laughs> and in his 50s, he will still hang around bars chasing girls in their 20s, thinking <laughs> that he is the Lothario that he once was. Uh -huh. And that delusion stays in place. Whereas a greater narcissist, who's a somatic, will be very good-looking, will have stayed in shape. Uh -huh. So there is actually something there, but the greater will embellish what's there even further, be boastful about how good-looking they are, uh, layer on the grandiosity on top of that. So there is some substance there, but it is possible for a somatic of a lesser nature to have let themselves go. So to begin with, they may well have been reasonably good-looking, but they tend to think that they are better looking than they are. And then mm -hmm. with the advancement of age, what tends to happen is they still see themselves when they look in the mirror, they see the, the Greek God looking back at them. <laughs> but in reality, there's a um, paunch, thinning hair and crooked teeth. Giant belly. Giant belly. Yeah. You mentioned earlier primary source. And so I yes. want to step back and tell us about the various sources of fuel that various narcissists seek out. Certainly. 
all narcissists have a fuel matrix, which is made up of the various victims that we have. Many people often think the victim is purely, uh, the narcissist really only has one victim, and that tends to be somebody in a romantic sense or a member of the family. We take all of our victims from a romantic setting, uh, social, work, complete strangers and family. And they fall into three bandings, tertiary sources, these are strangers, so it might be remote strangers. So, for example, you're a tertiary source to me. I don't know you, and we've met through the internet. Mm -hmm. um, so you'd be a re you would be a remote stranger, a tertiary source. But but I'm positive fuel for you, HG. You are absolutely. <laughs> so there will be no devaluation. So don't worry. Great. And then a tertiary source might be, for example, the gentleman who uh, gives me my newspaper each day at the newsstand. And I see him Monday to Friday, and I say hello, he smiles back at me, a little dose of positive fuel there, but I don't know his name, and I never get to know him. Mm. And so we, we invariably have a number of tertiary sources, either one-off tertiary sources or intermittent tertiary sources in our matrix. Secondary sources are drawn from family, friends, and colleagues. And you have non-intimate secondary sources, so that will be your friends and members of your family, if you're not committing incest, and colleagues that you're not sleeping with. But you also have intimate partner secondary sources, and those are uh, when you start dating, when we start dating a victim, or mm. it'll be a booty call, or a mistress, or a mm -hmm. side piece. And with the secondary source, their fuel is more, more potent. And generally speaking, secondary sources enjoy a longer golden period. This is the time when we treat them well. And the reason is, is we don't spend all of our time with the secondary source. So as you know, with your own friends, you'll see them every so often. And therefore with us, because we see those secondary sources only every so often, the fuel that they provide to us does not become stale. And also they remain compliant with what we want to do. So there's no reason for us to devalue them. Okay. So many people who are secondary sources stay in an elongated golden period. And then you have the primary source. The primary source is the most important person. You can have a non-intimate uh, primary source. So that's a family member, parent, child, sibling, for example. But it's more common that the narcissist will choose an intimate partner primary source, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, partner, etc. This person is the main source, hence primary, of fuel that we receive character traits and residual benefits. It is this person that invariably we look to have as an empathic person. They may be normal in terms of their uh, makeup of empathic and narcissistic traits, but usually we will pick somebody that's empathic. And that's done with lessers and mid-ranges through instinct and greaters through calculation. Wow. And those empathic traits manifest in a variety of ways that we recognize and there are certain places dependent on the school and cadre of narcissists that are our hunting grounds. So, for example, a greater somatic narcissist will be in the best restaurants in the south of France looking for suitable empathic victims to find there. And with the primary source, it is the primary source that invariably suffers the worst of our behavior. They are seduced. Now, a mid-range or greater during the seduction creates the golden period. This is when people are familiar with the love bombing that takes place, the incessant text messages, the mirroring of your behavior, you found your soulmate, etc., etc. In some instances, however, you don't get all of that love bombing, but rather you're treated well enough. And that's the bronze period. And that tends to happen with lessers. And the reason it's different is that the lesser is just about keeping the beast under control <laughs> and hasn't got the energy to go into the 
uh, flowery and uh, violins and hearts and flowers side of things, but rather just keeping a lid on the beast that's lurking. So you have this, what I call the bronze period. And then the primary source uh, always finds themselves subject to devaluation. And that varies in terms of the length of it, how harsh it might be, and the various manipulations, dependent on the extent of the fuel matrix and the type of narcissist that you're entangled with. Wow. Now, the typical pattern, you've mentioned the golden period and the bronze period, but what is the typical pattern of a narcissistic relationship? Okay. Well, assuming it's a romantic one, and if it's with a primary source, the pattern would be we target you, we then start the seduction, and once we are content that the seduction has been effective, we embed you as our primary source. So what might happen? Let's say, for example, you and I meet in a bar. You're a tertiary source. We get talking, we swap numbers, we arrange a date. You then become a non-intimate secondary source, in essence, a friend. We have two or three dates, and then we end up sleeping together. You become an intimate partner, secondary source. At this point, I've recognized that I think you're going to make excellent material to be a primary source. You have a high emotional output, uh, lots of empathic traits, great character traits, residual benefits. So I want to ensnare you. And therefore, I make you what's known as the candidate, intimate partner, secondary source. I'm looking to fast track you to be crowned my primary source. Then... When I feel that you are under my control and that I've isolated you from other influences that I might try and pull you away from me, you become the primary source. And the golden period continues when you're embedded. And this continues for as long as you continue to provide me with fuel at the potency, frequency, and quantity that satisfies me. Of course, you're on a hiding to nothing because if you provide lots of fuel, it of course becomes stale quicker, and therefore that triggers devaluation. <laughs> if you don't provide lots of fuel, thus it doesn't become stale, of course you run the risk of not providing it as frequently or as in the quantity that we require, and thus devaluation. So you're damned either way. <laughs> and then, in order to maintain control over you, but gain further fuel, we switch to devalue you and draw the negative fuel from you. And that's when the various manipulations occur. Now, in some instances, we may enter what's known as the stranger zone, whereby we don't really talk to you as much, and we're not nasty with you, but it, we seem like we've turned into somebody else, almost a robot. And it's a kind of neutral stage at the beginning of the devaluation. And then thereafter, the devaluation can take a variety of forms. It can be out-and-out out, uh, violence, beating the person up. Uh, the gaslighting that takes place, the triangulation, because once you're in devaluation as that primary source, we're looking around for your replacement, and we may have one or more candidates being lined up that we are having affairs with, that we are chatting up at work, that we are flirting with when we go out to bars as we look to find your replacement and draw those people into our fuel matrix. Now, in terms of time, the golden period may only be a few months. It sometimes can run to a number of years. Very much depends on the type of narcissist and also depends on the fuel output, etc., of the relevant victim. Devaluation thereafter can go on for decades because certain narcissists will keep that primary source in place and never let them go. Or they will disengage from them but then come back and they will yo-yo between two different primary sources Turn, swapping roles for them as they're painted black, then white, then black, then white. Mm. And so devaluation can go on for years. And of course, many victims have no idea what they've tangled with. 
And because they're empathic and they're truth seekers and they want to try and heal and fix, they try and salvage the relationship. And because they've been conned at the outset by this fake golden period that we have created, this illusion, what happens is you want to get that back because you think that it was genuine. It was real because you experienced it, but it wasn't genuine because we created an illusion. What we do is we mirror a lot of your behaviors, causing you essentially to fall in love with yourself. And that's why it's so powerful. <laughs> wow. And then the discard. Well, I don't like that word because it suggests finality. And I prefer to use the word disengagement. I have used discard to begin with because people recognize it as part of the dynamic. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, what you have to bear in mind is that there is more than one dynamic. Most people are familiar with the romantic one of the primary source. But let's look at, for example, the situation of an intimate partner secondary source. And you have a shelf intimate partner secondary source. This person gets to spend the weekend with the narcissist, treated really well, has a lovely time. The narcissist says, I've got a busy fortnight coming up at work, but I'll be in touch and I'll see you in a fortnight's time. Okay, they accept that. They fire off some texts in between. They don't see one another, but those text messages and calls are conversational crumbs of comfort that keep the victim bound. And they then meet up and have another lovely weekend together. And this person never becomes the girlfriend, but is just the person on the side, and they're strung mm -hmm. along. However, if they push for more time with the narcissist, the narcissist will issue what's known as a corrective devaluation, a short silent treatment, for example, to bring them back into line. And once they're back in line, the golden period continues. So that person could be kept in place in a elongated golden period as a shelf secondary source of an intimate nature for years. And, and the disengagement never happens because their fuel doesn't run stale because the narcissist is only intermittently dealing with them. So one always has to remember that many commentators talk about the narcissistic dynamic as seduction, devaluation, disengagement, and hoover. Well, that's applicable to the dynamic with an intimate partner primary source, but it varies on the type of source and the type of narcissist in lots of different ways. Turning to the disengagement, why does that happen? Quite simply, your replacement has come along. They are now subject to our control. We don't need you anymore. So we <laughs> kick you to the curb, and it's as brutal as that. Or the abuse has become so much that you are no longer functioning and providing us with any emotional output, and therefore you've malfunctioned, and we haven't got a new person in place, but there is no point continuing with you because you then become a burden. We're not going to look after you. We don't do support. You're not providing us with any negative fuel or positive fuel now because you've essentially entered this numb state. So we will get rid of you and disengage. Or you expose us in some way. You might work out what's going on and outflank perhaps a lesser or a mid-range narcissist by telling family and friends all about the abuse and you're able to show some credible evidence that it's been going on. And whilst you may not expose us as a narcissist, because many people don't realise that is what has happened, we are exposed as an abuser. And that exposure means that you immediately become toxic to us and we will disengage from you. Wow. Now, you mentioned the Hoover. What is that? The Hoover. Well, there are a variety of hoovers, but in its traditional sense, the hoover takes place when either we have disengaged from you, which is the most common, or occasionally when you have escaped from us. And the hoover takes many, many different forms. It's essentially done to draw you back in. 
And there are two aims arising from the hoover. One, which is not always used, is to bring you back into the formal relationship. So for example, we disengage from you and therefore we are no longer boyfriend and girlfriend. But what you have to understand is that in our minds, you belong to us forever. So whilst the formal relationship has ended, the narcissistic relationship persists. And that only ends when you die or we die. <laughs> Wow. And that's, that's how we regard you, because we regard you as an extension of ourselves. You're our property. You are our object. And therefore, when we have disengaged from you, we effectively delete you from our minds because we found somebody new. They're the new shiny toy. They are the apple of our eye, our flower and bloom. And therefore, they are the manifestation of everything that we want, brilliant fuel, and far better than you ever were. And therefore, you were just a bad memory and push you to one side. And if you stay out of the way, you are effectively deleted and you don't hear from us for as long as our golden period with the new person continues. But once that devaluation of the new person, your replacement, starts, then we're looking around for a replacement for them. And who better than to go back to somebody that we've already caught once, somebody we've invested in, somebody, of course, that we regard as belonging to us. And all of a sudden... You were painted black because we disengaged from you. But now, because of the compartmentalization and split thinking that we engage in, you're painted white. And the current primary source, she's awful and terrible and doesn't look after herself. And all of a sudden, despite us telling you that you were a whore and a slut, we now think that you're wonderful again. And we can do that without any recognition of the contrarian nature of it or the hypocrisy because it serves our purposes. Wow. And we will then look to hoover you back in. And sometimes this is done by sheer charm. Sometimes it's done coming along with a false contrition. I realized I hurt you. I know I have to make changes. I'm willing to do anything it takes mm -hmm. to get you back, etc., etc. Sometimes Or I still have something of yours that you exactly, should come and pick yeah. up. That's right. We, we, we create something that's called ever-presence. So what we like to do is we imprint in the relationship when it starts with you, lots of triggers so that when we've disengaged from you or you've escaped, you are still repeatedly reminded of us. So for example, the way I might do this would be, I will leave certain items of clothing at your house and never take them away. I will ensure that I always wear certain signature scents when I'm with you. So that if you were to go down the road and smell the particular aftershave, that would automatically cause you to be reminded of me. There will be a certain playlist for our relationship so that when you hear those particular songs, you are reminded of me. I will take you to certain restaurants so that when you go there, you will be reminded of me. And you're imprinted repeatedly with all of these things. And so what happens is it becomes very difficult for you when either you've escaped or disengaged to get away from us because our ghost lingers on in some form, whether it's that particular chair that we always sat in to watch television or the empty cup that we always insisted on having our cup of tea in that's still on the shelf. All of these things are littered around and they're painful reminders for the victim. And what they do is whenever the victim sees or hears or smells these various things, they're reminded of us and the emotional infection we've caused in them flares up. And what then happens is because it's painful, the easiest way to get rid of that pain is to engage with us again because that was what makes it go away. <laughs> and so that's what happens is that the long hard road of going no contact and staying away from us is difficult. And your emotional thinking cons you by saying, 
he's left a message for you. Call him back, see how he's getting on. And you do, and immediately you feel better because you've heard our voice. And then we start to say sorry, or we start to charm you. Or it might be the lesser, of course, hoovers by threatening you and saying, you better get back to this house or I'll break your legs. So there's a variety. And the hoovers Yikes. come in many, many forms. So it might be speaking to you. It might be text messages. It could be passive. For example, putting certain uh, song lists on Spotify that we know you'll see and be reminded of us. Mm. It might be sending a relative round to talk about us. There are countless ways of doing it. Now, you mentioned the con. And so I'm wondering, do all levels of narcissists give a warning? Because I know I was given a warning of, I don't know, you seem like you're all about me. And like, I love to love, but I also hate people. I hate everyone. That was what was told to me. And that was, as I reflect back, a big warning sign. Do all narcissists do this? No. Um, in terms of warnings, there are, of course, uh, they come into two categories. There are the red flags. And those are one, those are those uh, instances where we don't make the admission. But with hindsight, you look back and think, yes, he wanted to spend all of his time with me. He was over complimentary. He bombarded me with messages. Um, he wanted to come and live with me very, very quickly. So those are the red flags, which are either never seen or they are and they are ignored because the victim explains them away. Right. And then you have the other side of it, which is the portentous remarks that narcissists will make. And that is when we will say something to you along the lines of, you should run away from me, I hurt people. And what we're doing when we say that is testing you. We want to see the extent of our control over you. And invariably the victim being empathic will turn around and go, oh, I don't believe you'd ever hurt me. You're so lovely to me. Mm -hmm. The green light comes on. That shows that you have not picked up on the warning. You have not seen any red flags or heeded them. And moreover, you are determined to stick in with us by virtue of the response. Yeah. And what tends to happen is graters tend to issue portentous remarks most often, again, as part of the game playing. And we do that. So that at a later stage, when you start crying and complaining and moaning about being hurt, we turn to you and say, well, I did warn you. So it's your fault <laughs> yet, yet again. Wow, that's um, dark. Mm -hmm. Lesser and mid-range narcissists also issue potentious remarks. Uh, and that's just part of the greater glorification of their powers. So, for example, the lesser likes the fact that he's able to go around and bust people's noses. And so he, he will say... Um, I'm a dangerous person because he likes to be thought of as being dangerous and hard and mm -hmm. edgy. And so he's saying it in that respect. He's not warning you in terms of saying, I am a narcissist and I'm manipulative. Right. He's just giving you a warning in terms of his actual behavior. Yeah. I'm laughing because I've experienced all of this, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm just like, wow, I wish yeah. I had had all of this information then. So I'm curious, as you're talking about all of these behaviors, you know, where does narcissism begin? Like, what are some signs or is there a particular part of your childhood that causes this? What have you discovered? My view is that it is a combination of a genetic predisposition and upbringing that results in the creation of a narcissist. For my own part, I have a half-brother and a full brother and sister. My half-brother, being older, was not around the house as much. My brother's an empath. My sister is a codependent and I'm a narcissist. We are, of course, genetically related, and we had roughly similar upbringings. There were some differences, but look at how it's turned out. 
three completely different people. And so it's a little bit like having lots of ingredients for a cake mixture. And in some instances, you may find that an individual who is in an abusive environment turns out to be an empath because they have that particular resilience, which I think is as a consequence of their genetic predisposition. Then you may have somebody who becomes codependent because they've defended themselves by giving and giving and giving. Hmm. And that, so again, there is probably genetic predisposition to be that way, layer the abuse on top of it, and that's what comes out of it. Right. So would you say the parents are always narcissists, and that creates either a narcissist, a codependent, or an empath? The parents will either be narcissistic, or one of them will be, or both will be a narcissist. Okay. Now, I'm curious about early signs, because I've read about some conduct disorder and antisocial personality disorder showing up in young people, perhaps yes. through acts, behaviors of like hurting animals and finding amusement yes. through that. Tell me about that. Well, the injury to animals is something which is more related to antisocial personality disorder, which is in the realms of uh, psychopathy. And... The difficulty is, of course, is with um, various disorders which come under what are known as cluster B, often bleed into one another. And therefore, there are certain behaviours whereby you will find them in those with antisocial personality disorder, you'll find them in those with narcissistic personality disorder, you'll find them with those with borderline personality disorder, for example. Now, in terms of narcissism with a child, there'd be instances whereby exhibiting a huge sense of entitlement the me, me, me attitude, uh -huh. uh, very poor boundary recognition. It manifested with, my, uh, with myself, whereby I went where I wanted whenever I wanted, except within the home environment because of the level of discipline that was there. Uh, I was a very good student at school, uh, but what I did was that I would engage in uh, certain behaviours whereby I would push the limits and bend the rules, but do it in a way whereby I wouldn't be caught because I regarded it as my right to be able to do these things. So, for example, uh, I sequestrated a set of keys for the various cupboards uh, around the storerooms for the school, which I ought not to have done. And they were out of bounds to the pupils. And what I used to do was charge my friends uh, 50 pence each so they could take the girlfriends in there for half an hour and get up to whatever they wanted to do. <laughs> so, so rebelliousness. Little, so there's an element of that. Um, there was also the fact that in terms of one of my behaviours manifested, and this is more in terms of my antisocial behaviour as well, was the destruction of property. Uh, I was a prolific arsonist when I was younger. Oh, wow. I love to set lots of things on fire. I still like to set things on fire. I just don't do it as often as I used to do. I had a combination essentially where I was treated as a golden child, but on top of that, there was a massive sense of expectation and nothing that I could do was ever good enough. So I basically climbed the hill to find there was another hill behind it. And no matter what I achieved, I could always have run somewhat faster. I could have got a higher mark. I could have uh, done it differently. Um, so I was always seeking an approval which never came. And at the same time, I was subjected to significant abuse. And so my behaviors uh, manifested whereby I saw the way that my mother, she's a narcissist, treated my father and other people around her. And I realized, and I recognize now through the work that I've done with uh, the good doctors, as I called them, that the, my narcissism was obviously manifesting earlier than that. But I actually made a conscious decision whereby I saw that there was a way of protecting myself. 
And I saw the way that my mother behaved and also one of my uncles, who's also a narcissist. And I decided if I do that too, I won't be helpless anymore. So I actually made a conscious decision, but that's more related to the fact of me following the path to being greater. With others, it's less less conscious in terms of making that decision. It happens as a matter of a defense mechanism. Mm -hmm. Now, I was really curious about one of the videos that I saw on YouTube or listened to Mm -hmm. on YouTube about narcissism within families and particularly between siblings. And you mentioned you have a half brother and you used an example about two brothers, what their actual narcissistic dynamic is between them, but how they're perceived by people outside of the family. And I found that to be very interesting. Would you share that? Yeah. So within the family, you'll often have the situation whereby there will be the golden child and there'll be a scapegoat. And sometimes you can have more than one scapegoat. And siblings, for example, uh, you may have two who are both narcissists, for example. And if they're both lesser narcissists, they don't know what they are, and they will spend all of their time battling against one another uh, because they have already effectively seduced one another by reason of their familial relationship. They were already bonded from the beginning by reason of being brothers. Mm -hmm. So they didn't have to go out and find one another And then thereafter, because uh, narcissists do have emotions, people think that we don't have them. We do. We just have a limited range. So they will have fury. They will be jealous. They will be envious. There will be hatred. And that will manifest as emotion. So that they will provide fuel to one another. But of course, it won't be entirely satisfying because they're not empathic. And what will happen is they will have a very roller coaster relationship of always fighting with one another, always trying to outdo one another. One will buy a car, the other will go and get the same car but a better model. Or the, <laughs> uh, or he'll come back and find that his tires have been slashed because there is that competitive nature. Wow. Because with, with with us, we you are the competition. You might be brother, wife, friend, but you are the competition because everything has to be about us. Everything must come to us in terms of fuel. And so we regard everybody as competition. So you may have that dynamic of two lessers who are brothers who would just lock horns all of the time. And in those circumstances, you may also find that the narcissistic parent will play one off against the other and will give one the role of golden child and will say <laughs> that um, Adam, for example, he always does very well, but you, Billy, you need to try harder and you're such a disappointment to this family. Wow. And no matter what Billy tries to do, he's always in the role of scapegoat. And, of course, he won't necessarily blame the parent because he'll want the approval, but he'll blame his brother because he'll think his brother is getting what he's entitled to because Billy will also have a sense of entitlement. Adam recognises that he uh, is treated well, but realises, well, so I should be because I am entitled to be treated well. And so all of these toxic influences of the sense of entitlement, the failure to recognize boundaries, lack of accountability, mm. lack so of they empathy, might, and so on and so forth. Yeah, they might go after the other person's significant other as a power play. As Absolutely. A Absolutely. And this lack of boundary recognition, of course, goes into further arenas, which is not always the case, but it can manifest in terms of, for example, let's throw a sister into the mix. Uh, she may well be abused by one of the brothers sexually, for example, or physically, because there's no boundary recognition. He treats so she's not a narcissist, she's, but she's treated as an object. Wow, it's funny because in my experience, I did actually say out one time, I was like, I feel like I'm being treated like an object, like a sex object. The way you touch me, the way you grab at me, there's just that lack of boundary recognition is unbelievable. 
Absolutely right. And that's one of the things that you can often spot with somebody um, in terms of indicators. One always has to keep in mind that there are lots and lots of indicators to demonstrate that somebody may be a narcissist, but they are indicators. They are not determinative in themselves, and you have to look at the aggregate of them. But uh, simple examples might be, if you meet somebody who is, a, who is just an acquaintance or a friend, but when they greet you, they kiss you on the lips, that's a failure to recognize a boundary. <laughs> now, a lot of people will probably just react to that. Either they're going, oh, that was quite nice, or oh, that was a little bit surprising. But that is a, a narcissistic behavior. Because in Western society, you kiss one another on the cheeks or shake hands. So to kiss somebody full on on the lips in that manner demonstrates a lack of boundary recognition. For example, as well, coming along and taking somebody's drink and finishing it, that's a lack of boundary recognition. Some people would just say, oh, that's just impoliteness. Well, yes, it is impolite, but it isn't recognizing a boundary. It's taking somebody's food from the fridge when knowing that it was their cake, for example, just deciding to eat it. And so all of these little examples you start to stack up, you see that there's a manifestation of the sense of entitlement. So it might be we're often late. And the reason for that is we're entitled to do what we want and we're not accountable for our lateness. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's your problem. And why, why are you being awkward about us turning up five minutes late? Do you not realize what a demanding job I have to do? And you're getting petty about five minutes. So we t- obviously turn it around mm-hmm. onto you. And... Of course, what we're often doing is when you're waiting for us outside of the cinema, we are probably on the phone courting another prospect. (laughs) Uh, And that's why we're late, because we do not value your time. It's really interesting to me, though, how people who are not who are ignorant about behaviors of narcissists see it a certain way or they explain it away. That's so, right. Oh, that's just impolite behavior, like you used as an example. And that's well, this is one of the biggest problems that exists in that. If you were to say to somebody, what's a narcissist? Some people would go, I have no idea. And some people will say, oh, that's somebody that loves themselves, isn't it? Very few people at the outset know what a narcissist really is, much less recognize one. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that is there is not enough awareness about it. But even bigger than that is as a consequence of the lack of awareness, many narcissistic behaviors are euphemized and normalized by magazines, television programs, so-called relationship advice sites, these relationship gurus. And regularly, I will see a situation where somebody writes in, they explain their situation, and it screams they're in a relationship with a narcissist. It does not get mentioned by the supposed expert. They don't even suggest it as a possibility. Hmm. And you see it time and time again. And you see these phrases, he's a commitment phobe, or uh, he's just not into you. And so people are thinking, why is it that he doesn't reply to my text messages? And of course, because you don't recognize a narcissist, your brain can't accept that. It has to find an answer. And empathic people are truth seekers, and they need an answer more than anybody else. So what happens is they either think that it is the behavior is caused, for example, because that person is tired or stressed, or as time goes on, the victim will start blaming themselves because they have to find an answer. Mm-hmm. And the behavior on the face of it doesn't stack up because it doesn't seem logical. The narcissist has suddenly thrown a plate on the floor and stormed out of the room when everybody was sat quiet enjoying their dinner. Why did that happen? In the narcissist's world, it happened because he was served last, which told him he was unimportant. That wounded him. In his world, it made perfect sense. But in the world of the victim, that behavior made no sense. But the victim has to try and find some sense. And therefore, 
goes to the third party reason or will blame themselves. Mm-hmm. And of course, if they then go and talk to a friend or they go to one of these sites and they describe it, uh, the behavior, they're never told or very rarely told. This, is, this could well be a narcissist. They're told, well, have you thought about uh, creating more date nights together? Or perhaps you just need to give him more space. Or perhaps you should try and uh, please him more often. And some of the advice that I've seen is downright dangerous yes. to being provided. Oh, my God. Um, absolutely. Well, and you're mentioning the relationship advice sites, but this also could go as far as going to a therapist, because if you're really suffering inside of a, a narcissistic relationship and you really need help, but your therapist has no idea, they might actually make you feel like you are messed up. That's right. And many of my readers have explained to me that's exactly the scenario that they face. Of course, there are many good therapists and There are those that understand narcissism, although they are in a minority. And those that do obviously provide uh, useful advice and help. And there are those which don't, there are those who just don't even recognize it. Mm -hmm. And what's quite interesting is I have a number of uh, readers who regularly consult with me to help them with their situations. And I have a number of psychotherapists and psychologists that do so because they became entangled themselves and they have this deep sense of embarrassment to think this is my field and I didn't even recognize it now they their specialism wasn't narcissism of course they were involved in another area of it Mm -hmm. but it just shows that people are easily susceptible to it and they may well go and see a therapist who does not pick up on it and then starts to think if they don't have any understanding when the victim starts to describe all of this behavior it seems so extraordinary that often the responses the victim receives are, well, perhaps you're being too sensitive, or I'm sure that didn't really happen, mm-hmm. or you're overthinking it. or And the fact is, those who have not experienced it really don't have a clue. And they come out with all of these comments, which then causes the victim to think, oh, perhaps it is me. Maybe I have been getting on his case a bit. And of course, this is where our plausibility kicks in, because... What happens is when we devalue you, we then start smearing you to other people and saying, oh, she's turned into this complete harpy. She's always on at me. And then what happens is the victim is at the end of their tether. They're exhausted. Their self-worth has been eroded. So they lose their temper with the narcissist. What does the narcissist do? Turn to his friends and say, told you she's turned into a harpy. And there's a fate to come play. Yep. That's exactly what happened to me. I got provoked and provoked and provoked until I just blew my lid. And then and we do like, it on purpose. Mm-hmm. And he was amused by it and was like, yeah. there she is. And yeah. he and I obviously got a lot of fuel out of that. Absolutely. Can a narcissist ever change? You seem like you are learning and becoming self-aware, but you're never going to stop treating people in your life in this way, are you? Correct. Um, lessons in, lessons in mid-range can never change because they don't know what they are and that will never alter. Greaters, we do have the capacity to change because we have the awareness. It's whether we have the willingness. We're so Mm. effective at what we do and we enjoy what we do and it works for us. Because we have no conscience or guilt or remorse, why change? People say, you're an evil person, you hurt all of these people. So it doesn't bother me. I don't feel bad about it. (laughs) I do what is effective for me. That's all that matters. Is it selfish? Of course it is. But that's the way it has to be. That's the way it is so I have to exist. So why would I want to change from being somebody who's successful in terms of what I do and successful in terms of my existence? Why would I want to risk that? 
Now, what I have been doing and looking at is, as part of the work with the good doctors, is this concept of being pro-social, whereby they have underlined to me and they've utilised the work that I've been doing on my blog and my books to say, you've got a great ability and talent there. Rather than utilising your various skill sets for hurting people, why not try and slow your thinking so that in certain situations you look for an alternative route that is more social so that you can achieve your aim mm. without the destructive side. And I've started to apply that, not always, but I have noticed that there has been a slight difference in my behaviours. But being honest, I still devalue, I still lash out, and that's still there. Right, so it'll never change. That's interesting. So what is the best way for someone to get away, to escape? Is it just no contact? I mean, will you always be at risk of being hoovered back? Yes. The first step is to understand what you're dealing with. And once you understand, you will remove a lot of the anxiety that you're suffering from, the bewilderment and confusion. So much of what we do does not stack up in your world. And that's intentional because that confusion means you become paralyzed. You can't move forward and you keep fountaining fuel so it serves our purposes. Once you understand, you start to apply your cool, hard logic rather than your automatic emotional response. Emotional thinking is invariably bad thinking. It's knee-jerk. There is no evaluation. You dive in. And, of course, when you are in the maelstrom of the narcissistic dance, your emotional thinking is so high, you can't get it under control. If you read and understand, you'll start to get your emotional thinking under control and you'll build a platform of logic. Yeah. So understanding is the first thing to do. Once you start to understand, you can then counter. Counter takes two forms. Either get out, stay out, go so, which is no contact, or counter the manipulations if you can't get out for whatever reason. So no contact is, is looking to remove yourself from the narcissist. You ought to prepare for it properly because if you're dealing with a great, for example, we are extremely determined in bringing, either stopping you going in the first place. We will recognize if we think that you're doing something whereby you're trying to escape and we will issue what's known as a preventative, preventative hoover to stop that happening. Hmm. If you do escape, we will then engage what's known as the initial Grand Hoover, where there is a blitzkrieg approach to draw you back in. A greater will charm you off your feet. And if that's not working, then we'll threaten you back into the relationship. The mid-ranger, his initial Grand Hoover is all through pity play. How can you do this to me? I'm going to commit suicide if, if you don't come back, etc., etc. Wow. So you need to go no contact. And my book, No Contact, details in considerable detail what you must do because you're not going to have a normal breakup. You're not going to have like a, no, a conversation with the narcissist and be no. like, you know, this just isn't working out. <laughs> no, that's right. Indeed. You have to go without telling us. You have to ensure that all of your needs are uh, dealt with as, as far as you can before going. You need to change numbers. You need to uh, block on social media, perhaps even come off social media altogether. And what I set out in No Contact is not only the ways that you can go and achieve all of this, but I tell you the ways that we will try and break your No Contact. And you will not get that anywhere else because yeah. other commentators are not looking at it from the perspective of me. I look at it as to, you've escaped me. This is how I'm going to break your No Contact. This is how I'm going to bring you back in. And I detail all the techniques by which we'll try and achieve that. 
Now, absolutely, no contact varies in its robustness. Ideally, you flee the continent and go somewhere where you change your name and the narcissist can never, ever find you again. That, of course, isn't always practical. Sometimes you have to stay in the same town as the individual. They know where you live. And the book, again, details all the various things that you can do to make your uh, no contact as hermetically sealed as possible and plug the potential leaks and gaps. If you can't go no contact, for example, you uh, co-parent and the former relationship is an end, but you still have to have some engagement. The way to deal with that is as follows. And this also applies, for example, if you work with a narcissist, then you need to limit your interaction with the narcissist to the bare minimum. Therefore, if it's work, can you have a, a different allocation of roles so you don't involve yourself? Perhaps you can move to a different department. If it's co-parenting, organize for third parties to do the handover for children if possible. Then, on the occasions where you have to physically interact with us, keep the time as short as possible. And in those interactions, be neutral and businesslike when you speak to us, so you give next to no fuel. You can never give no fuel, because fuel is provided in what you say, your body language, the expression on your face, the look in your eyes, the tone of your voice. And you try and talk to somebody completely neutrally, who is somebody who upsets you or angers you, you try and do it for 30 seconds. It's oh, it's hard. so hard. It's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. And even if your tone stays neutral, look in your eyes, the way that your mouth is twisted, etc., will be telling us what you're really feeling. Mm-hmm. And so we will gain that fuel and we will look to provoke you to get more from you. And of course, when we interact with you, if we know we're getting fuel from you, it's like a shark scenting blood. So we're more likely to hoover you again because we know that there's fuel to be obtained from you. Wow. So try and reduce the fuel that's provided. When you have to have any interaction, try and keep it in writing for the most part. Writing is the poorest method of giving us fuel. It Mm. doesn't have a little emotional in it. Uh, For example, if you wanted to make arrangements about the children, do it through email, not through text. Text is too immediate, whereas with an email, you can sit and type it out and think before you fire it away. Mm -hmm. And also, you could organise it to say to that person, in terms of arrangements, I will check my emails between eight and nine every day. And so you only ever look at those times. So you're not having the effect of thinking about the narcissist by keep looking at your phone and the messages keep coming through. Right. And in the messages that you send, don't use emotive language. I often, uh, with the people that I consult with, they ask me to vet their communications so I can pull out the fuel for them so they can structure it in an appropriate way. Wow. And then you also have a written record because, of course, in certain instances, we like to frustrate child arrangements. We, we will delay the return of property mm. or financial issues uh, in order to keep a hook into you. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you might have to escalate things. And therefore, if you have a paper trail, so much the better for you. Yeah. And also, so, I mean, just holding you accountable in general. Yes. And of course, we will not accept that you can hold us to account. And what you have to do is often rely on an authority to try and bring us to account because, uh, of course, you might want us to do something and we won't because we regard you as black. And therefore, if you are trying to ask us to do something, we see that as you trying to exert control over us, which we can't have. And therefore, 
you have to escalate it and perhaps go to the police or mm -hmm. uh, bring civil proceedings or go to the local authority or whatever. Yeah. You know, it's amazing just hearing you talk through this. You can hear the amazing value that you provide. I mean, you are going way beyond anybody that I've read about or talked to about all of this stuff. And so I encourage all of you out there listening, please go online, Knowing the Narcissist. And you can get, there's so many books available in a full YouTube channel, No Contact, How to Beat the Narcissist, Escape, How to Beat the Narcissist, Sex and the Narcissist, Sitting Target, How and Why the Narcissist Chooses You, Revenge, How to Beat the Narcissist. We didn't even get into that today, HG. <laughs> Ask the Narcissist, Total Confessions, I mean, Fury, HG covers it all, and he gives you actionable tips things that you can actually start doing today to help you escape the clutches, as he calls it. Any final thoughts for people out there listening? I hate ending this because it's amazing, um, but we are running out of time. I understand. Um, essentially, what you need to bear in mind is we always want to make you think that it's your fault. It isn't. You should keep hold of that point. We control you by making you think that it's your fault, cause you to think that you've done something wrong, and you haven't. It's all what we have done for the purpose of manipulating you. Once you realize that, you can gain a handle in terms of creating this platform to establish your understanding. And the key thing to do is to read. Read and understand and then you will be able to achieve freedom. And if you have any concerns in terms of, am I with a narcissist, or this person seems narcissistic, what do I do? Or I definitely know that they're a narcissist, but these things keep happening, or am I going to be hoovered? Then you can certainly come to uh, my blog and ask those questions or consult with me, and I'll go through it in detail for you and give you the understanding that you require. And I've done that with many, many people. And the testimonials I've had for them are very rewarding, which range from, I feel utterly empowered to, if it were not for you, HG, I'd have killed myself by now. Wow. That's huge. I just got chills with that one. Everybody out there listening, please take advantage of HG's material and his consulting services. Please go to narcsite.com. I'm going to provide the link in the show notes to you. HG, what an amazing, amazing time I've had listening to you share all this great information. Thank you very much. You're most welcome. Thank you for having me. Have a great topic you'd like to hear discussed on an upcoming episode of Nothing Off Limits? Email us at ideas at ladyfoxentertainment.com. In the meantime, please subscribe, rate the show, and go to ladyfoxentertainment.com to sign up for our email list and to check out our resources page. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.